0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the This Is My Ride Bike Stories podcast series presented by Argon18. My name is Craig Alexander and I'm your host today. My guest today is a gentleman from the UK who's making quite a name for himself in the tri world, not only with his scintillating performances, but also with a little bit of banter. And I can't wait. This is going to be a fun chat. Of course, I'm talking about Joe Skipper. So I hope you enjoy our chat and have a good listen because our podcast starts now. As I mentioned, my name is Craig Alexander. I'm a former professional triathlete, former world champion, and I've also been an Argon 18 brand ambassador for seven years now. But enough of that. The reason we're here today is to chat to this man. He's a guy who's been on the scene for close to a decade now, and he's been on the rise for a long time. Um, The last few years, he's been he's really been lighting up the circuit with a host of Ironman wins. most recently, he won Ironman Chattanooga, Ironman New Zealand in 2020. He's also had a win at his on his home turf, Ironman UK, in 2018. And he's no stranger to winning uh, in North America either with, with some big wins, most notably Ironman Florida in 2019. He's been peppering the podium for over half a decade, close to a decade, and had a host of sub-eight-hour performances, which in our sport is like the four-minute mile barrier. Of course, I'm talking about... The great man joe skipper joe thank you for joining us
1: (laughs) that was quite an introduction that was
0: (laughs) well mate i thought i'd i thought i'd uh give you a good intro because you know you've been getting some great performances you've also been creating quite a stir with some of your your interviews recently and um we'll get to that but mate i'm here to talk about you and your preparation for this year and, and your season for this year so most recently you
1: are hold on a sec craig and is that really loud in the background because you can hear my dogs jumping up and stuff like that like no nah. i put them in another dad i not don't, uh, don't talk to them if you want on it because they hear here on the podcast right. like take, take
0: them uh, oh, downstairs I'm all right hi mr skipper take the dogs for a walk That's it. can you see him there dad look,
1: look. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so we've just been interrupted by Mr Skipper which is fine he's the boss Joe's dad <laughs> he's just come round to help me because we're getting that one of them endless
1: pools sorted in the house and yeah. uh it's got no decking on the side so he's putting some decking decking around it um so he's come around to help me with that and uh, the dogs love him so as soon as he comes around they're like jumping up at him and he's got a couple of they have a get, guest house so we have a couple of sausages left from the uh from the guest and they don't have them that's why they're jumping up and make them no noise so they can smell them in his pockets and he's like got
0: uh Got a couple of triple artists for him. <laughs> Very nice. See what happens when you, win a, when you win a few races, mate? You get endless pools put in. You get, you get your old man to come around and walk the dogs, cook your sausage sizzle.
1: <laughs> he cooks them for the dogs. He treats the dogs better than me. <laughs> they get the A-star treatment.
0: You just get the leftovers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All
0: right, mate. Well, let's talk about your most recent race, Ironman South Africa, a fourth-place finish. Tell us about that event and how would you rate that performance?
1: um it was a bit disappointing to be honest like the fourth place like I was definitely one to win it and I was like thinking I was in shape for it like my training had gone really well beforehand I was swimming the best I've ever done certainly running the best I've ever done and I would say my cycling was uh, it wasn't the best I'd ever done in terms of like the power numbers but I knew the position was uh, a lot quite a bit more aero than what it had done so I was quite confident like I was confident that I could go faster on the bike but the power was getting better, better and better. I think it was part of it was just, you know, getting used to the position and just mm. better, more power up. So I knew the more, as I was spending more time in that position, it was getting better. And then uh, the the travel went well, the lead up went really well to the race. Like I did a few sessions, um, you know, uh, in the lead up to it, four or five days out. And I, I mean, you kind of do similar sessions, don't you, to a race like four days out and you know, like if that goes well. and what kind of like paces you want to hit and how you want it to feel, don't you? And that kind of gives you a good confidence boost. So I did like um, a couple of hour ride on the course. Um, wasn't really hard, just did one uh, 30 minute effort at like target race pace, did a five um, a 10K run off the bike, which was like 4Ks uh, at like a steady pace, 345K. And then 4Ks at like 325, and that felt quite, quite nice. And that gave me a massive confidence boost. So then going into the race, I was really confident that I could do a, a great race. And then on race day, the swim almost got canceled for us. It, they put it down to 700 meters, mm. which on paper you'd think would be absolutely great for me with the swim being my worst, my worst part of the triathlon. But actually it seemed like it had the negative impact because all it did was made loads of the pros get out of the water within yeah. 40 seconds yeah. and everyone's fresh getting off the bike. So it just made this huge pace line of like 25 people um so you're sitting in at the back, you're probably barely pushing it, and then you're trying to get and then because of the way the wind was on race day, it was um a massive tailwind uh on the way out. So one of the Strava segments, because you, you have a little look at your data, don't you, afterwards, you know, to see. We went 17 kilometers and we averaged 55 Ks an hour. So you can sit, and that was off like only like 310, 320 watts. It just shows you like how powerful the wind was. So it just shows that it was like it was always gonna be really hard to get away because even if you average 58 k's an hour for 17 kilometers, you're probably only gonna have 15 seconds. So on the way out, it was almost impossible to get away. But then on the way back where it was the headwind would have been, if you could have got away, it would have been awesome. And I knew that because no one wanted to lead in the headwind and I knew if I could just get a, a gap into starting into that headwind, I'd be home sailing because everyone else in the group would be like, oh, I don't wanna put a load of effort into the headwind. And that was what it was like when we were in the group riding into the headwind, it was so slow because first of all, you get way more of benefits sitting in behind people right. on the, on the headwind. So you were, and secondly, no one wanted to, uh, to lead it into the headwind because it just felt like you were riding into like a brick wall. But I, I tried to get away before that couldn't get away. And then there was a cr- like one, other, a couple of other sections. And, uh, ultimately I just couldn't get away on the bike until like 20 K's to go. I think partly was because it seemed like whenever I went, everyone else was like uh, straight after me. Whereas if someone else tried to get a bit of a gap, it was almost like they were happy to let him go. Like I saw Jesper Svensson got away a couple of times. He got a decent gap about 15, you know, 20 seconds. You kind of see him and I bridged across to him twice. Like put a really high intensity effort, went away, got to him, had a cheeky look over my shoulder. I saw we had about 200 meters, 250 meters. And I thought, yes, we're away. You know, you're kind of like on that point where You're almost breaking the elastic because they're not getting any benefit Mm. behind you when you've got 200 metres, 250 metres. But they just worked their way back up. And it was so frustrating. But it was almost like that happened about three times. And you kind of thought to yourself, I must be close to breaking the elastic here because they're not pulling me back straight away. I'm almost getting away. Maybe the next time I'll have more luck. And ultimately, tried to get away a couple more times. Didn't really work. Got away at the end with him. We only got 20 seconds and then starting the run, I was confident In before the race. I still thought when we got off the bike, right, I'm in a good position. I'm off the bike with like, yes, we're in first place, basically, and I've got a little 20 second buffer going through transition, which kind of gives you a bit of clean air, you know? Mm. It means like, even if they start off running 10, 15 seconds a mile faster than what I wanted to at the start, after two miles, we might be running together. And it means that I hadn't had to do that surge out of transition because you, you know what it's like, Craig, when you get in off the bike in an Ironman, people start off fast don't they because they kind of want to gap you at the start and you don't really want to let them have that gap but you don't really Mm. want to go with it but you know if you don't go with it that can put them in a better position because mentally they're like they they know they've kind of got a bit of clear distance and they're more in control aren't they so just having that 20 seconds I thought was all right because it could mean that I could start off at a normal pace or just
0: keep it steady yeah
1: yeah, yeah, and uh, they're going to try and catch you, and they're going to run too hard, and they, you always pay for it, don't you? In an Ironman, even if, if you go out too hard in the first five miles, you know the last five, ten miles, you're going to be, you're going to notice it. So um, yeah, yeah. I was quite confident, but then started the run, and just felt like I had nothing. I just felt flat, like, and uh, I'd uh, not really had that before. You know, normally I was saying to a friend that in an Ironman, like the first half of the run feels like it's almost for free. You know, yeah. you normally feel quite good, light on your feet. And then it's once you get to like 13 14 miles it just starts getting every mile a bit harder, a bit harder in the last like seven or eight miles you're kind of like digging into like to to hold it there aren't you? you know and if you're in a battle that's when it's really tough but yeah. one kilometer of that bloody run felt it felt easy i felt like i was having to push the whole way didn't feel good and it was such a strange um strange feeling it was quite disappointing actually because it had been going so well in training and i i don't think i ever had a bad run off the bike like even off a long ride in training since I started this kind of like winter's training in October like every run had gone really well you know I'd done some really tough long rides and managed to run superb off, the, off them so I was like so confident so then for it to not happen on race day was uh, really disappointing and uh yeah not what I was expecting at all
0: Yeah, well, it sounds like there were some lessons learned I mean every race is different isn't it and the tactics yeah. are different I mean what I'll say to you is what welcome to the world of being one of the race favorites when when you make a move it feels like the whole field behind you will work together to bridge a gap and and take turns to do so. And I mean, that's just something that you're gonna have to cope with now and and you're strong enough to do that. But, you know, I think it sounds like all the fitness is there. I wouldn't wouldn't be discouraged by one performance. When you travel for the first time, that can happen. It sounds like you've got a good three or four months of winter's training in the bank. So I, I certainly wouldn't be discouraged by what happened. Like you
1: said about the tactics, I definitely did learn a cup quite a bit on the tactics from that, you know, like in the future, you know, like, um, first of all, like I would, uh, probably just go, for, if I was in a big pace line like that, again, I would just sit in, save my energy and just wait for this, Look, uh, the right moment in the second part of the race when people are feeling a bit more fatigued. And the, last, uh, the last, the last 60 K. Yeah. One big effort in the last bird. I'd have saved loads of energy uh, for that, and I'd just wait for the right moment. Uh, Or the other one would be just back your run because I've had some good runs in the past, and uh, I should I could have just backed it for this. You know, I'd run the fastest times in the marathon anyway. I should have said to them, "All right, well, if you guys aren't gonna uh, if you guys aren't bothered about trying to get away in the race, I'm just going to sit in, push 200 watts, and uh, I'll have a good run anyway." You know, and I I could have done that, and then it would have been up to they might have thought actually i don't really want to run with him if he's fresh and not doing anything maybe i'll try and do a move and you'd have almost like bluffed them into thinking this isn't what we want him to sit in so then they might have thought they need to waste some energy
0: well you that's, know, the, or the, try
1: and that's
0: the thing when you're one of the race favorites um you know you make the decisions let them respond don't respond to what they're doing so i think no, no. you need to be able to win it in a number of different ways and you can and uh, hindsight's I
1: mean, what, a great thing, isn't well, it? I wish I could go back in time and do it again. Well,
0: mate, the great thing is you're gonna get another chance very soon. Yeah. So that's the great thing about racing. There's always another one around the corner. And you know, one of my great rivals who was a great bike rider used to do that. He used to wait for the last sixty or ninety K. And he was very patient and he could always open up a sizable gap and then run well off it. And and like you say, you've run a lot of well several sub two forty marathons, so you you do have strings to your bow it's just about having the confidence and executing but I want to pick up on one of the things you talked about you know one thing I've noticed the last five years in the sport with technology with with equipment and also wearable technology and recovery and all of those things is you know when I when I first stepped up and started racing Ironman we really used to just had road bikes and we put a different front end on them but it was really just a road bike Towards the end of my career, I noticed you know you could get free speed by having a great position. You wouldn't need to put out the absolute high power to ride quick because the bike was doing a lot of the work. You know, your coefficients of drag are a lot lower. And it's one thing I think you guys have to concentrate on. And I noticed following you all on social media, um, all the superstars of the current generation, you guys are testing your positions a lot in the velodrome and in the wind tunnel and with those bikes and having a great position you can sustain high speeds at different parts of the race, uh, for a lower power output.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It makes like a, a massive difference. Like, mm. I mean, for instance, like one of the guys who, um, I was riding with out in South Africa, you know, he's on like a really good bike himself, but he hasn't done as much. Like he hasn't looked into his equipment and every, you know, like other parts as well. And, uh, or his position. And, um, when we ride next to each other, he's putting out 30 Watts, 35 Watts more than yeah. me. he's racing as a pro as well. And, um, he said, uh, he's, he, he's, uh, he's like me. He's uh he's a, he's a land animal, you know, we're not from the water. So, uh, he missed the, uh, even though the swim was 700 meters, he missed the, uh, the big group that got out. Mm. And, um, he, um, he said, uh, afterwards, oh, I was riding 340, 340 Watts. Um, like 350 watts, what kind of power did you do? I can't believe I didn't catch up. Like, it must be the benefit of the group. And I said, yeah. Well, mate, you know, before the race, even when we are riding at 250 watts, 240 watts, you were having to put out 280, 290. Yeah. But then as the speed goes higher, the aerodynamic impact is even more. So when I, if right. I, and I said, I had to ride 350 watts to get to the front and then to try and, like you know, and so if I was riding that to get across and then like to, I put a big, like a digging because I almost got, I kind of got away at the start. But, um, I said, if I was doing 350 watts, looking at what we were doing in the lead up to the race, you'd have been 400 mates. Unless you were going to ride 400 watts for the first 40 minutes, it would have been impossible for you in your current setup to to bridge up to that group because, you know, he was probably needing 50 watts more than me. yeah. And then he would have had to have gone more power to actually close the gap, not just to hold it. So the gap just went out. And I said, um, you know, and if you don't improve it, like it's just going to be impossible for you to in that setup to get there. And that just shows, you know, that like you could be, incredibly powerful. I mean, even if you started an Ironman 40 minutes at 370, 380 watts, and then to actually lose time was just crazy. But that just shows you like how important having like the top bikes, top equipment, dialed in position, like literally how much it all all makes, you know? Yeah.
0: you, You always needed a great position or a comfortable position because you had to run off. But I just think at the level you're racing at now, you can't neglect any of those things. As you say, the speeds, as they get higher, coefficients of drag become more important and you still need to be able to whatever your tactics are on the bike you still need to run 240 <laughs> or under so um you know yeah, you need to you need you need to keep all those things in mind for sure you can't you can't be giving away free time um in the you big, don't want <laughs> to uh, put out a lot of power just to hold the,
1: the uh, hold hold in in the group because then you're going to run terribly afterwards aren't you and uh, maybe you see that in quite a few ironmans like quite a few of the people have to ride too hard and then they're all right for the first 5K, 10K of an man and they just completely blow up, don't they? Like, there's quite a few people who consistently seem like that.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, you know, I mean, oh. look, you, you need to be good in all the disciplines. You need to have several strings to your bow. It helps to be towards the front of the race after the swim, and then you're calling the shots. You're not on the back foot, you're on the front foot, and you're not responding or reacting. You're actually dictating. So. I wanted to ask you about the rest of your schedule for 2022. Um, Tell us, you know, tell us what that, what the calendar, the race calendar is looking like. I know you've got Utah in a month and uh, what are the main, what are the main goals and objectives for this year?
1: So obviously Utah is a big objective, Like that's what I've been training for really hard over the winter. And then after that, I've got Ironman Nice, which is 26th of June. Um, Oh, actually before that, uh I should be helping Alistair in the sub seven like um as one of the pacemakers on the bike which is I think that's the fourth of June um so that's a that's a big one because obviously he's trying to go sub seven and there's um 10 of us in total I'm not actually entirely sure who the actual all of our pacemakers are in total we did like a training day like a mock one on the bike because a lot of it comes down to the bike for that doesn't it you know like yeah yeah if you bike really well then you're gonna have a shot at um yeah sub seven but if you can't ride 50 k's an hour for it, then uh, sub sevens out the way. So, I think the swim he's definitely not going to need my help for the pacemaking on that. <laughs> so uh
0: he's a great yeah. swimmer. So do you think? I mean, sub sevens a given though, isn't it? I mean, honestly, ten. It's harder than what you think. It's definitely harder. When we did the training, I, ride, I, I, I'm I was... not saying it's easy. I'm just saying I'll be very um, surprised if he doesn't go under seven hours quite it's comfortably. Tell really you why it's
1: hard, because we thought it was definitely going to be a given. And when you're riding at 50, 51 k's now, we thought you were going to be able to sit in and only push 220 watts. But the problem we've been finding is even sitting in, you're pu- 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 uh, pushing 280, 300 watts. And that's the hard bit is we can easily ride 51, 52 k's an hour rotating. But even the person that's trying to save the energy, Alistair, puts out, is putting out decent power. And then you've got to try and run 230 mm. off the bike. You don't want to, you can't, it's very hard to run 230 off the bike if you were putting out 300 watts because that's similar to what you'd put out in a normal Ironman. No, you've got
0: to be under 4 watts per kilo to run 230, yeah. for sure. So, so it's
1: very hard, actually, to but to save that person's energy so they can run well off the bike. And that's the key bit is we can go fast enough, but if we go fast and he has to ride 320 watts to hang hold in there, he's going to run a 245. Do you know what I mean? And then he's not going to do it. So that's the – the if it was just about like – it sounds a lot easier but then when you practice it um oh, i'm not saying we...
0: i'm not saying it's easy it's going to be hard was, i know, just think was... i just think it'll be closer to 6.45 than it will be to seven
1: yeah i mean it was uh, we were we were surprised at how much harder it was just because not from like the actual holding the speed just from saving the guys uh, for the guy to to do it because we thought it was going to be a given like that we were like yeah it's gonna be a piece of piss 6.45 definitely we'll ride around there at 52 k's an hour and he'll run sub 230 off the bike But then the actual thing is how fast can we go without him going too hard? Because even sitting in there on the back of like seven or eight people, it was actually, um, quite a decent power. And then when you had, like, when you did the rotations, even though they weren't big spikes of power, it was like, you noticed it. Like it was like 500 Watts for like a few seconds, you know, when the person went through, especially if they went through a slightly bit too quick. Um, so it was, it was actually different. It was actually harder than what we thought it was, because we thought exactly like that, like 6.45, this is gonna be a piece of cake. He's gonna swim 45, we'll bike around there, 3.40, something like that. And then he'll be fresh because he's not done anything and he'll run sub 2.30 off the bike. But then actually when we did the training day, we're like, ooh, this is uh, a bit harder because how fast can we go on the bike? Does he use a road bike so he can run well off it with TT bars? But then even when you were sat behind people, for instance, when we were sat behind people, even when we were riding 52, 53 k's an hour, there were some triathletes. There was there was a, a couple of triathletes, really good triathletes. I mean, you don't want to rename anyone, but they got dropped, just sitting on the back, like ninth person, literally got well, dropped. Well, they're
0: not they're not really good then if they're getting dropped. You need to se- <laughs> you need to select. I mean, come on, no,
1: to- I know, but we've gone for in the sub seven. They've gone for. Um, it looks like there's going to be some decent cyclists that are doing it. Yeah, like I don't think I'm allowed to to, to name anyone. Well, so said-
0: you don't have to give us an exclusive. We're, I'm not no. that interested to be honest. Anyway, I just, I mean, I watch the event. I think it'll be cool, but. Um, I think the main battle will
1: be him versus Christian, will be the interesting bit. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if you go sub seven, if the other person beats you. um, For sure. That will make it a lot more interesting. If it was just watching someone time trial round and just going sub seven, it'd be pretty pretty boring because it's not in standard Ironman rules, is it? Which people can relate to, which is kind of a bit different. Yeah. But I think if it'll be interesting.
0: It'll be interesting to watch. Like you say, I think the key is even if he has to touch four or four and a half watts the main thing is you're not spiking all the time you're just keeping things very steady yeah and he needs yeah. to go on a time trial bike not a road bike. come on yeah needs, no that was know. just
1: uh, some of the things we're thinking of but that, the thing is is because in the past in the time trial bike with his position it's been he's struggled a bit on the run isn't he in the longer ones whereas hmm. we wondered road bike clip and tt bars disc wheel front section but trying to get quite an aero position you know but yeah. that relaxed more hip position because we thought it depends if you can save enough energy that you can run well because if, if you say if you're only saving like 15 watts but you're not put we thought because it might be you might not be putting that many watts out do you know what i mean sat in there in the uh pace line but it will be interesting
0: in any way you, you'll get a good training hit out for it so <laughs> <laughs> that, that's i mean so what, what else is on your ticket like you've got nice surely you're going to kona oh yeah nice
1: is, that is a big one for me because that's been one of them bucket list races you know mm. that i've wanted to do from the start and, um, I get married a week after. So there's a load of us that are actually going to that. There's probably about 15 and then I'm going on my stag do after the, after the race and then get married the week after.
0: Mate, why aren't you doing the stag do before the race? You, you young guys have got and, the timing all wrong.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, doing the stag do after it and then, uh, get married on the Sunday. And then I'm just gonna have like. A bit of a break then like a mid-season break so i really want like that to, to have a good race before that and uh, and it should be quite fun because there's quite a few of us doing it and we've like we've we've all wanted to do that race for like since you know since we like started
0: triathlon really um clearly you've then, had clearly you've had more input into the planning than your fiance because i don't know of a bride who would have the stag do very close to the wedding day you've got to have the stag do just in case an eyebrow gets shaved or your head gets shaved or you can't have this bag too, too close to the wedding photos. I mean, <laughs> your fiance, she's gotta be saying, she doesn't care about me. She just wants to make sure the wedding photos are on point.
1: Yeah, she does. She has, uh, she has said stuff like that. And she's like, because of. Uh, and you've totally disregarded it. her input. <laughs> uh, I don't think it, it was my, one of my friends that came up, the the guy is the best man that came up with that. Um, but the, but she said, um, she said after me catching COVID in, uh, South Africa, she's like, you better not catch it the week before the wedding, Joe. If you do like that is, uh, that like, I'm not gonna be happy. She's like, that's the main thing that she's, uh, worried about because there's she, no wedding She won't be right. happy
0: if you, if you catch it on the stag. If you get the stag doing, but not the wedding, then she won't be happy.
1: There will be, I will probably not be getting married. Uh, she'll be going crazy, mate.
0: No, you'll, <laughs> you'll, get, you'll be able to talk her back around, schedule it for six months down the track and then you get another stag doing as well actually it could work brilliantly it could work out brilliantly
1: (laughs) but but yeah that's the plan for the first part and then the second part which would be definitely want to do one them pto races so i'm not going to do the first one because i think the season's just so big you know if you do like say st george you do the uh you know I want to do Nice and obviously want to get married, but then trying to do the PTO, the set, the first PTO, one three weeks after that would just be too much. And to be honest, it's not my best distance. If it was my best distance, then I would have put more emphasis on there. But yeah. you know, Ironman's where I've gone a lot better. If I was going a lot better at the seventy point three distance, then I wouldn't be getting married three weeks before the first PTO race. You know, so it's not like it's you know uh, I'd be going straight in for that. So. I'm not going to do that first one, have a bit of a break, but then I want to set myself up for the second part of the season and ultimately doing really well in Kona. And um, in the past, having a bit of a break at the start of, you know, October for like, I mean, sorry, July for a couple of weeks um, means that I can get a block in of altitude training, get a really good build up, get a race in. And everything's not too crammed because one thing I've seen with some other athletes is they either don't have a break and they're cooked by the time Kona comes around Or yeah. they have a break in like august and then it just doesn't give you time to get yeah. the training in and the race without cramming everything you know it's almost like everything's like go 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 get a race in don't want to taper too much they don't do so well in the race beforehand and then they haven't got as much enough time to do a decent result in kona i mean you're the expert on
0: that i mean kona's always you've done pretty well in kona haven't you a few times so <laughs> got, you, you got lucky there a few times but mate, that's why yeah. that's why i asked the question because you know, setting a race schedule for the season—it's like a jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? And yeah, and, yeah. And you just mentioned the pitfalls and some of the obstacles. So, yeah, it's something that requires a lot of thought. And and you can't stop living because, you know, there are weddings and christenings and and things to go to. So, um, yeah, it's the reason I asked the question. I just think it's important that, you know, to have a successful season, you've got you got to give a lot of thought to the planning and the races you want to be in peak condition for and. Um, you know, it is a packed schedule this year, so it sounds like yeah. you've given it, you've given it a lot of thought. I want to touch on, I mean, you mentioned that you've had COVID, you got COVID in and around the race in South Africa, possibly before the race. Um, now you're, you're recovering, you're home in the UK, you've got, you've got Utah coming up in about a month. So what, what, what does the next month look for you, look, look like for you now in, in terms of, I guess, your training, your traveling? Getting there in time to acclimate to the time zone, get a little bit of course reconnaissance. I mean, have you given any thought to what the next what the next four weeks will look like?
1: Well, so originally I would have flown two days ago on Monday and I'd have been in altitude training flagstaff. Yeah. That was the A plan. Two and a half weeks in flagstaff, and then I would have dropped down into St George, I think it was nine days before the race, and I had done like I, my dad was going to come up with me and we would have like wrecked the course you know I'd have done different didn't done it all in different bits I wouldn't have done uh, 180ks you know a week before the race but I'd have especially liked to have seen the last 60 70ks where um you've got the two climbs mm. um but now the new plan is kind of taking it a bit on a day-to-day basis really yeah. like I'm um, um I only I had really bad symptoms on the Saturday I mean just for a bit of context from Wednesday now so it's like four four or five days afterwards um so i want to see when i can start training and just get a few easy sessions in um and just see how my body feels and then i'll look to book flights over there to, depending on like how i feel and mm. I, I mean also when i can get a COVID, when i would get a COVID negative that would be one thing as well because um you can't actually fly to america unless you get a COVID negative so yeah. I think looking at what people, how long it normally stays in people systems, it would be at least another five days before I could even probably get a COVID negative anyway. And I I won't be going to altitude now. It will just be going straight to St. George um, and I'll just try and wreck the course, train on the course, get to know it because I've never actually been there before um, and just get an idea of how the, how the flow of the course is, because that was one thing I missed in South Africa. Like the winds have been coming from one direction the whole time. Leading into the race, and then apparently the other direction is where what makes the swim really rough and like potentially causes like cancel swim. So I had a really good feel for how the course would ride with the conditions we had leading into the race. Where would be good places to attack? You know, where the wind was coming from the right directions, and like if the court, you know, the technical bits of it. But then because the court wind changed on race day, it kind of made where you'd want to attack different. And I'd like to know that for St George. You know, get to know the course a bit better. Where you know, like if the wind's coming from this direction on race day, all right, this is a good bit where you want to be at the mm. front. This is a bit where you can like put some pace in and it'll make it hard for everyone, you know, and uh, know where you can save your energy. If, come, if the wind's coming from this direction, push this bit hard because the next bit's an easy bit. And you kind of know loads a little bit where you can save the energy, where you can make it hard for others and you can ride the course as efficiently as as, as possible. So yeah, ideally training on the course would be really handy. The run, um, like I'd like to know just because I think it always helps knowing where you run and how you're running but the the hills don't really phase me too much because I looked at it and it seems pretty similar to Ironman UK where you've got like a long draggy climb turn around at the top drag you back down bit of flat and then back out again you know it's very similar to that and um that has gone really well for me in the past I like them races Mm -hmm. where you've got like a lot where you've got a hill because it just makes it more of a strength runner's course and yeah if people go out too hard on the bike or they don't fuel properly, that second time up the hill, they just bonk and it just forces them to walk. Whereas I always find with the flatter courses, if people bonk or they kind of like are on the limit, they can just knock it back 20 seconds a mile and yeah. they can kind of nurse at home. Whereas when there's a bit of a tough hill, you can't really nurse it. It just uh, gets them to the point of breaking point and they can just lose so much time quickly. And that really seems to like help me.
0: Yeah, well, that that's, I mean, there I say, that's the reason you do course reconnaissance because, I mean, at the top level, you guys and girls will all be physically very fit, but the mental and emotional component, knowing how to execute a race plan to get the most, I mean, the goal is to get to the finish line yeah, the fastest. So you've got to know where you can spend some, some energy and get a return on that investment. The parts of the course where potentially there's no point going deep into the well because you're not going to get a good return on that energy investment yeah Um, but it sounds like you've got you've got that covered i mean you have always performed well on on harder courses strength courses so you must be super excited um for this race in utah knowing the course profile what i wanted to ask is have you done anything differently in this preparation this winter or has it just been more of the same
1: uh i've trained harder this winter than what i have other winters because like i wanted to be in top form like in may yep and i knew from the past how i normally train I don't normally come out at the start of the season, really firing on all cylinders. You know, I mean, I've had some good results in New Zealand and I think it's probably helped because I come out there in the summer, but I'm not generally as fit in March as what I would be in July. So I kind of just tried to, I got it. I um, had an earlier end to my season. So when I raced Chattanooga in September, that was obviously earlier than normal because normally you'd race Kona, I might do another race afterwards which would then take it to basically by the time you get training mid-November for instance whereas I kind of ended it after Chattanooga thinking like end of September I can have like a decent break I'll be back in training but before I normally am and then I'll just build it up gradually like I'm not going to go like full pelt in but then I'll be able to get some decent once I do build it up and I get the volume in I can start training quite hard and I should be in good form by the time May comes around because I've trained harder this winter so I just kind of did similar training but just got into it a bit earlier and just like trained a bit harder you know like I mean I've learned so much from the last few years about what kind of sessions work how to build it up and just taking everything I've learned it's very similar but I've just taken what I've learned into this winter and just used that and it it had been going you know really well before I caught COVID I mean I did a 50k run over Christmas time when I wasn't in top fitness and that went I held a good pace for that on like undulating route which gave me some confidence because Uh, that felt comfortable and I knew that if you could do well for that and you're biking well then it's looking good for an Ironman you know and obviously with another four months of training that I I was confident my swimming I learned a lot from going to Dubai because I was training with another pro triathlete and um, he really helped me with like what swim sessions to do and like what I need to do to improve my swimming and i had been swimming the best I'd ever swam and um that that really helped. I mean, that was a whole year process. Like he was giving me the tips in January, and I did it all through the summer, and I could see my swimming getting better and better. So I kind of kept doing what he told me uh, in terms of training, and um, yeah, basically I've just took what I've learned and just started my winter training a bit earlier than normal, and just pushed it a little bit more. You know, like got into because I started training earlier, I got into doing the intensity a bit earlier and I know what kind of sessions I normally do before I do really well in an Ironman and um obviously kind of got into doing them in like February time March yeah. time um so just to build that early get that yeah, everything gifted a bit earlier to try and get into better form for May
0: do you have a coach or do you do you write your own programs
1: uh I I do it all myself like I've I had a coach back in like 2016 2017 but um, since then, I've just been doing it all, all myself and I was doing it myself uh, before that as well. I mean, but I do talk to people like, you know, when you go on training camps, or you speak to people. And I've trained with so many different people that have had coaches, uh, like other pros and like been with coaches that you just learn so much along the way. And mm-hmm. um, one thing what I've certainly noticed is that there's no one size fits all. Like there's all these different coaches and they're all doing slightly different things, but we're all trying to get to the the same goal and um yeah I def- and, and I, I quite like listening to my body I, i'd like to say that i'm like quite sensible you know like if i was going to do like a hard session i could tell that it wasn't happening today you know i felt a bit uh you know i could tell that I, w- I wasn't on it you know i felt really tired or fatigued i'm not worried about like taking it easier and listening to my body and changing it around a bit you know and doing it another day whereas i think some people when they are coach self-coached they just force themselves to do it or they overtrain. um and um, also when they are coached, they feel, you feel like you've got this pressure to do the sessions. You know, the coach has said, for instance, do 10 by K on the track. You get to the track, you feel absolutely horrific. You know, you mm-hmm. had a terrible night's sleep. You feel like you're almost coming down with something. And what do they do? Do they like ring the coach up in the morning? You know, they feel guilty because they're not going to do the session uh, or do they just think, oh, I'll give it a go. And then they go to the track, get three or four reps in, felt terrible. And then think, why did I do it? You know, I should have just listened. You know, I should have not even done it in the first place um
0: yeah no you're right what's more important than a coach often is a, I would, a psychologist I would, or a therapist
1: <laughs> yeah I mean yeah that is definitely true I would love to, I mean it would the idea of having a coach I'm not definitely against it you know I'd love to have someone who would um it's the right you it's that, the right
0: person yeah yeah it's
1: the right person and like if they if you knew that what they were giving you was getting um was the right stuff and you were getting results it'd be fantastic you know you just kind of do what they do and they've got it all covered but it's very hard to find someone that's yeah. like that you and like when people find that and they have that with a coach i think they're so lucky because yeah if i did have that and if i knew what i knew now 10 years ago i'd be a hell of a lot better than what i was 10 years ago but i just wish i knew someone like i guess part of the problem is where i live in norwich they haven't really got that background of like performance you know and there's not really people that have been doing triathlon to a high level and had the coaches and stuff um mm. whereas i guess some of these other big cities or you know performance places like if you're in Loughborough you're in leeds people have been around elite athletes for you know decades you know they've always had this history of elite athletes and uh the coaches are people that have maybe been athletes and they've got an understanding of seeing how different people train and like i mean if i could have had a coach that could have gave me the right sessions 10 years ago i'd be a lot further ahead but it's just so hard to find that right person isn't it you know and you know that, that would help you
0: yeah well It's like finding a wife or a husband a partner it's a you know it's a good coaching relationship is a partnership the flow of information goes both ways it's never just one way it's it's good communication it's respect it's a little bit of trust but that trust has to be developed and earned it can't just be you know you can't just get a coach and day one you know yeah you're trusting them wholeheartedly i think every athlete you know, likes to have a little bit of control over what they're doing and, and self-accountability, uh, most high-level athletes. So it's hard to hand that over. And I think most great coaches don't want that handed over completely either. Um, so, yeah. yeah, you're right, it's, it's hard. It's
1: Did, did you have definitely. a coach, great. Did you have a coach, like going back to when you were a pro, like, cause you were a self coach, weren't you as well? Or did you have like a mentor uh, or someone?
0: I had a lot of good mentors, um, a lot of great athletes, I was lucky took me under their wing um, and I got access to their coaches secondhand. And I had different people at different times in my career who, you know, I was lucky, you know, you meet the right person at the right time. And it's, it's, it, yeah. you know, when you, who knows, sometimes you're not, you might not even be looking for a coach, but you just have a conversation with someone. And that's how I, I met two of the, the coaches I worked with. Um, and I wouldn't say they coached me full time, but they had a lot of input on my training and, and racing and, and i wasn't actually looking for coaches at the time it was just a conversation and one or two things they said i was like wow this person knows the sport so then i would start asking a few more questions and they would say things that i'd be like mm, this is interesting i mean and you know the thing is i mean is there a right or wrong way i don't know if there's ever a right or wrong way it's it's sometimes the situation is is right right now at this point in your career like you were might be get... um
1: professional triathletes that like former pros or were they uh, no. just like were they no. triathletes themselves or from another sport?
0: No. Um, one guy was a bike rider. Um, his wife is a pro, uh, is a, an age group triathlete who's won a lot of championships in her age group, and he's coached a lot of pros. And we just happened to meet um, actually in Kona, ironically. He was staying next door to where I was staying. And I'd won Kona the year before for the first time. And I just was, I was going to my room this one day, and my son at the time was six months old. So I was about to defend the Kona title and I had a six month old. So I was very distracted as you could imagine. And I met and and you know what it's like, Joe, when you're in Kona. Everyone wants to talk, everyone's and this sensory overload, information overload, you're hearing. And and back then it wasn't as bad as you guys have it now with all the social media. You know, you're just getting bombarded from yeah. every area. And, <clears throat> But you're down the street, you're at the press conference, you're at the expo and you're hearing different things. And I just happened to be going to my my room this day. And, and this guy was standing next to me going to his room. And of course, he knew who, who I was. And we started chatting and I was holding my son who was six months old. And we just started chatting. And it was interesting because he actually offered to help. To I had my hands full. And he said, mate, you need me to hold your bike while you go in there. And I thought, this is amazing. You know, this week, you know what it's like to, you know, in race week, it feels like everyone wants something from you and it just happened at that time I needed help and he offered to help. And I felt like in that week, everyone had been asking for something, but this guy was offering something. And I thought, how nice. That's, and it's, again, it's just one of those situations where, and then we got to chatting actually. Um, he helped me. And then I saw him later that day, we started chatting and he said a couple of things. I thought, man, this guy knows the sport. Um, you know, for him to say that he understands what goes into racing, and and then yeah, we we formed a friendship after. that. Actually, he was he was wearing a few hats that that trip because he was coaching a few athletes, but he was also he was a photographer and he was doing some work for for triathlete magazine. And um, you know, he said to me, "Would you mind if I followed you this week and just took some photographs?" And normally I would just say no if I just met someone in the street, but I'd I'd had a couple of conversations with this guy. He was living next door and I thought, yeah, how can it hurt? You know, and I don't know, actually, I don't, it's funny you ask me that question because thinking back, I don't even know why I said yes, because normally a week before the race in Hawaii, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be letting anyone into the inner circle, but um, he followed me around and took some photos, still some of my favorite photos to this day, like one photo I've got. I was laying on the couch the day before the race in Hawaii and my six month old son was just asleep on my chest. It's my favorite photo really of all the. you think of all the race photos you have done and I'm just there in a pair of boxer shorts and he's there wearing a nappy and, um, and that's the kind of photos that this guy wanted to take. He wanted the, the, the personal side, the human side of it. And we just struck up a friendship and I was lucky enough. I went on and won the race in Hawaii again that year. He was a big part of race week. He came and celebrated with us afterwards and we just formed a friendship, which is still going. He's one of my best friends still to this day. And what you said before is interesting because sometimes you're looking for a coach and you you can't find a coach and other times you're not looking. And that's the time that someone comes across and you cross paths with someone. So I don't think it's a bad thing that you are self-coached now because, mate, one of the greatest things an athlete can have, I think, is self-awareness and you know your body well. And it sounds that but i also wouldn't close yourself off to at some point someone's going to cross paths with you and maybe it'll be something they say or something they do um and there might be an opportunity there to work with someone and i wouldn't i wouldn't uh, my advice to you would be don't be, be open to that be
1: open to yeah, that yeah no i definitely am um, yeah like i love talking to other people as well again you can always learn something from someone can't you know and yeah uh, yeah stuff what you can take to your own training and what you do like and this can that can help you so uh, yeah definitely open to it
0: yeah and, then, and then like you said, there's no right or wrong someone who might be a great coach for somebody else because of personality or whatever might be a great coach for you maybe it's something along the lines of they're a great communicator um you know like i think it at the level that you race at you need a lot of ownership and accountability um but you need potentially you need someone there to swap ideas and information with and someone you trust and and the, the flow of information should go both ways and there should be a respect there that is either earned or comes about some way and um yeah you know I, th- I think being self-coached was an advantage for me until later in my career when i had three kids i had 20 sponsors and it would have been nice just to hand everything off to somebody else um yeah so yeah, who knows? But um, anyway, I, I, I've got a, I've got a question for you. Um, you know, I'm always interested because of, of where you live and obviously I follow you on, on social media and I look at a lot of the training you do, particularly when you're home in the UK. So what I wanted to ask was what percentage of your riding is is on your time trial or race bike and what percentage of, of your training do you do on, on say, a road bike or a gravel bike?
1: Um, I would say probably on my TT bike, when it gets into the season, I definitely do a lot more. Like in the winter, yep. um, like November, say December, January time, I'd say probably eighty, ninety percent is on my road bike, gravel bike, or something like that, just because the weather's absolutely crap, and I don't want to get the bike covered in rub, like shite, and uh, all <laughs> messed up. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but then, and normally because the racing's a bit further away, but you know, obviously. I do, I do try and ride it, like, in the winter still. Like, if it was, like, a nice day and it's, like, good weather, I'll take the TT bike out for a long ride. I like to get – if I can get a one long ride on the TT bike a week, that's that's good. But then once it gets to March and the weather starts getting a bit better, I would say I try and do 50% on the TT bike. Um, that's a good that – maybe a little bit more, 50 60%. Um, and then I would say probably – moat then the next one would be the road bike and then the gravel bike when it gets to like better weather maybe once every 10 days or something like that mm. I might take out on the trails um but predominantly TT bike road bike and then uh the gravel bike would be like once every 10 days in the winter middle of winter the gravel bike would probably be 50 percent of the riding because it's got like the bigger bigger wheels bigger tires don't have to worry as much about punctures um, yeah it's, it's easier to clean but then, as the as it gets closer to the summer, I kind of phase out the gravel bike uh, and uh, the, and uh, bring in the TT bike a lot more. And I try and do at least fifty percent. I like to do two one long ride with intervals on the TT yeah. bike. All my tempo training, I like to try and do on the TT bike if I can. Some maybe the odd one on the road bike, but because I think that's quite race specific. But then, if yeah. I was doing like higher intensity, like say V 2 max or threshold or above threshold you know stuff then i'd probably do it on the road bike but if it's like fairly like similar to like race intensities like 70.3 power i think it's good practice to like hold the tt position get a feel for it and everything like that and i definitely like to do one long ride a week like on the tt bike where you're holding position for predominantly like the whole ride because it's just good practice and it's quite fun isn't it you know yeah. tearing along the country lanes like you've been going like 45 k's an hour on the tt bike it's quite exhilarating especially when you get a towel and you're like leaning it in around the corners
0: it feels like you're on a muck bike <laughs> well mate we don't have too many country lanes in sydney so I, I don't know but i um you guys certainly have some good terrain i mean I, obviously i with the, the world the way it is now with social media you know i follow what all the top guys and girls are doing and we had i spoke to ruth last week so i mean being from leeds uh, the, the training in the uk it looks like it's brutal in terms of weather but it just looks like it would just toughen you up the terrain the wind um, and, and even the weather it just hardens you up doesn't it i mean and the weather's not as bad as what
1: people make out like i'm pretty soft now to be honest craig with the weather like i'm not gonna lie like um and this winter if it was like if it was below six or seven degrees and raining I'm not going to be going out getting myself freezing cold for two or three hours. And I think yeah. two times maybe this winter, I went indoors instead of riding outside because it was cold and wet. Yeah, that's good. Like, Leeds might be a bit grim. It's up north, you know, freezing cold. hills, <laughs> yeah, right. like And I'm trapped all down in north, sunny Norwich, mate. It's like the Costa del Sol down here.
0: You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, not quite. But... <laughs> yes. Mate, but I think, look, I think part of being a great endurance athlete is not only the Physical component, but just that mental hardening and toughening up that takes place, and part of that's training in conditions that aren't always perfect, right? Because often you turn up to, I mean, you know, I, our sport is a summer sport, but you, you just you're subjected to tough conditions, whether it's heat, humidity, wind, hills. And I think it's being funny able to- you say that, because just before I forget, I've got to say something like I saw on social media
1: yesterday. I know I could name and shame the pro, but I feel a bit bad doing it. But he said he didn't go out on the, right, on the race course in St. George. He opted for the turbo instead. He's doing course reconnaissance because it was too windy. But his teammate went out and rode. Name is Shane. Who was it? I, it was Justin Metzler. Justin Metzler. Like, And I thought, that's crazy because you can't pick the weather on, um, on race day, can you? And I thought it was blowing a gale and wet in South Africa. But like... You can't just say on race day, I'm not going to ride, can you? And I thought, well, they reckon that St. George in May can be really windy. So surely if can't you could just weird. do a training ride, you're there to be reconnaissance, be reconnaissance to the course. So surely if you get one of them days where it's windy, it would be a massive bonus because everyone else is yeah. going to have experienced that on race day. You'll yeah. have experienced know exactly what it's like. And I thought, I can't you can't pick the weather on race day. And to be in St. George, not riding it because it was a bit windy. I mean, it's not like it's raining, it's still 18 degrees and sunny. Do you know what I mean? Ed, we would be loving that, wouldn't we? You know? Mate, 18 oh, yeah. degrees and sunny. You wouldn't even think like it's too too windy to go out on a bike,
0: would you? Like in England for that. I think that the most not the most important part, but a very important part of getting a great performance out. And that that could be winning a world title, or it might be a novice athlete trying to get a personal best is is your mindset. The mind the yeah. mind-body connection is strong. And I know the reason I went to Kona and trained before I'd ever raced there was I wanted to I wanted to know every inch of the course. I wanted to know where the wind blew, on what days. And you know when the trade winds were blowing, I would, I would drive up and ride in Harvey. I wanted to feel what it was like getting hammered by those crosswinds that and granted I think the conditions and the and the seasons are changing. You know, you look at some of the races in Kona in the, in the nineties and early two thousands, they used to get the trade winds in October. I think they, they come more in September now. So I, I, really only experienced, I would say one really windy year in October. If you go there for the 70.3 in June, you, you, you tend to get more wind and more heat. So Such I think, a shame because it would be great for me to have a lot more wind. Yeah. Well, really- oh. you know what? And, and you learn the nervousness is, I think, Understanding that you're going to be challenged in those conditions and it's going to be tough, but when you expose yourself to those and you have a couple of rough training rides, but then you get the hang of it and you feel like I used to feel like riding in that wind was like sailing—you get pushed along, but you just learn to go with it. You don't tense up, you ride it, and after a while, I
1: it, can definitely it, agree with that because I went there a month before Kona once, like, and uh, there were some days where it was blowing an absolute hoolie and we did—we would be like riding down from Harvey, yeah—and you'd be sh- pants, wouldn't you? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, like this is dodgy this dodgy but you needed to know what it was like and if you had to just like done that on race day and that was the only day you would got oh. you might not be able to hold the tt position down there and you might lose the group lose the pack that's it race is done you know get 100%. 30 seconds down you know you're either gonna have to put a huge effort or six riders are gonna ride away from you and that's it you know like I think
0: you've just got to get used to the conditions you've got to expose yourself to it and you want to be under the wind on the aero bars, but relaxed, not tense in the upper body. And you, yeah. and you know, Joe, coming down from Harvey when you ride through those cuttings and the wind hits you. And I mean, I, I did a seventy point three race there one time, and people got blown off the bike. It's the only time I've raced there. I, I'd heard about it, but I'd never seen it. But uh, this big guy, this guy who was, he was taller than me. I'm five eleven. He was over six foot, and he was he was heavy. He got blown off his bike because he. He, he broke the aero position and reached down to get a drink as he came through the cutting and then got hit by a mm. gust of wind and just made tumbled. So, you know, I think if, you, if you're if you going to do course reconnaissance, the whole point is to experience the worst and then it's going to lessen the anxiety on race day. You know you can, you can handle whatever's dished up. And I'm always yeah. amazed when you, you hear, I mean, on social media, listening to people talk about Utah or when you're in Kona, people checking the weather app. 35 times a day in the week leading up to the race i mean you just have to you have to learn it's, it's not going to be fun for anybody and you have to you have to deal with it and i think the athletes who who can manage it who, who know and have prepared and mentally prepared but also physiologically got some adaptations for the heat or humidity or the wind or the altitude or whatever it may be they're the ones who tend to um to perform the best but uh, i don't want to take up much of your time i know you got Big don't worry, Clay. I've not got much planned at the moment with oh, like, Well, I know your dad's there walking the dog, so you don't have to do that tonight. And he's already cooked. The, <laughs> he's already cooked the sausage, the sausage sizzle. You're having bangers and mash for dinner, so that's taken yeah, care of. So. It's just mash now.
1: It's just mash. Yeah. He's just given the bangers. And
0: the dogs. <laughs> you got mashed potato, mate. The dogs have eaten the sausages. But okay, I'll I'll, I'll do some questions more rapid fire. They don't have to be one word answers. But um, what what would you consider? thus far has been the best performance of your career? Um,
1: probably whew, second maybe at Ironman Texas because it was the first big breakthrough. Uh, it's going back to 2015 and it beaten some decent names at the time. I think like the top guy on the start list then was like Ben Hoffman who had been second at Kona the year before. Yeah. He ended up being on the run, but I think it didn't go his way. And I think he ended up pulling out at some point, you know. but like being in the, getting off the bike ahead of those guys, like Michael Railett was in there. And uh, at the time, like, you know, that was when he was like killing seventy point threes, you know, wasn't it? Like, I don't know how long that was when he was world champion at that, maybe four or five years ago. But for me, because I'd just come up and I'd not raced any of those guys or at that level to get second place, it was probably one of them races where you race well above the level where you're probably at, you know. I mean, obviously did it on the day, but I wasn't consistently race someone who could get them kind of results. So to do that was, I just had a really good race on that day executed it well like you know when I look back at how the plan went how I got away with Lionel on the bike mm. we rode really well and I probably did the best I could do on that day and it I felt great so probably probably that one
0: Mate, I remember actually I'd, I think I'd met you the year before at Ironman UK in Bolton I was the event ambassador and you had a podium finish and I started, yeah. I started following you on social media and I remember that race in Texas because Someone asked you after the race, you did the race without sunglasses and your eyes were all bloodshot and someone asked you what happened and you said something about you don't race with sunglasses or you'd lost them in your T1 bag or... You don't, you were I young? wasn't using
1: them at that point because it used to make my eyes sweat loads and I use contact lenses. That's right. So it would make my contact lenses like fall out and then I can't see where I'm going. I'll take some wrong turns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't, I'd still be out there now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember you answering, someone had messaged you on social media and you said, yeah, I can't, I can't wear the glasses and you, your eyes were bloodshot. They look like yeah. roadmaps but, um, okay. Next question. So do you, do you prefer to train outdoors or indoors? I think we know the answer.
1: Oh, Outdoors. Definitely. hundred percent outdoors
0: but you can't you still don't mind some indoor training you I don't to... mind
1: some indoor training like if the weather's terrible then uh I'm gonna go indoors and very I like indoor racing like you know if I like when the Zwift Pro Tri League was on hmm. I used to really like that because it was really good intense racing. you're racing for some prizes like which kind of gave it a bit more of a, like uh, a proper race feeling, you know, like because there was some surprise. and people watching it. You know, it was shown on like YouTube. Yeah, and I knew some of my friends watching it, so you want to kind of like do alright because you don't want to look shit, do yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and to look... to, like, yeah, and it was like nerve wracking because people cheat on that. Like I know oh. they fudged away in somehow. So yeah, you, oh, yeah. You, um, you knew you were going to get a kicking before it started so you're like having like red bull caffeine and stuff and it felt like i was more nervous about that than some bloody iron man so i'd be on the start line my like i'd have goosebumps on my arms but used to hit some really good powers and afterwards you're like what a what a race you know when you yeah. have them races they're short mm-hmm.
0: and yeah you
1: smash and get everything out and you're like you know like i didn't think i had that in me today like uh yeah. it was like that and used to be looking forward to it the week so like i like the indoor racing but like indoor training by myself, I'd much rather go outdoors, like in the sun and make the most of it. But that's why we all got into the sport, isn't it? You know, we,
0: yeah, like it's an outdoor sport, like to get outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You talk about the, I mean, I grew up doing the short course racing and, um, yeah, we had a, we had a formula one series and the effort, but the high after it, and that, yeah, they're just great events they are over and done with so quickly, but, um, yeah, really test you out. All right. Last question. So, Let's say we're having a coffee or a beer next December. You know, a mocktail. Mocktail could be a mocktail. <laughs> no. um, whatever, mate. Whatever tickles your fancy. No. Um, you know, a happily married man. You're looking back at the season. You know what? What would you consider a pass mark for your season? I mean, will you, you grade it by results? Say a top five or a top ten in certain races, or are you looking more a certain level of performance that you're trying to hit this year? I mean. So I getting... would say,
1: I know what you. I know what I'd say. I would say I definitely wonder if podium at one World Ironman Championships, like St George or uh, Kona, and win a normal Ironman event. So, like, say if I like won Nice or won another one and got on the podium, then I'd say you know that would a bit that would uh, that would be a pass. If I got the podium but I didn't win another Ironman event, like then I'd say that was all right. You know, I did it on, at least I got the, kind of got on the podium in the biggest stage, you know, like I've won Ironman events before. It was a bit of a shame that I didn't win one, but going ahead to next year, I'd be quite excited because I think once you've got on the podium at Kona or St. George, you can kind of think, right, I'm not too far away from that win. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. because I, I think I had Cameron Worth say once in an interview that like to get on the, or it was, it might not have been him. It might have been someone else. I can't remember who it was, but it was someone and they said to get you know like the podium you've got to be able to do it on your worst day haven't you you know because you might be able to do it on your best day but that's not every race you can put out your best performance is there you know you need to be consistent enough that you're a podium athlete even when stuff doesn't go right yeah, yeah. so I think if you can do that then the next year I mean at that time you might have been a uh, you might have been able to win it that year but you would you were only able to win it on your best day and obviously you know that might not have happened so then. If you're able to podium on like not your best day, then the next year you get a bit better, you get a bit faster, you learn a bit more, you might be able to win it on not your best day, and your odds just get a bit better, don't they? Of being able to do it, so you'd be able to go in the following year thinking, right, I've got a podium now. What is the next things that I need to do to take it to the next step? So that would be good, um, and uh, yeah, that would be what I would class as like. An all right, you know, a decent, a decent season. I'd love to go to the Collins Cup again, but mm. Europe is so hard, and the point system just seems crazy how they do it. Because um, I saw Sam Appleton raced uh, your in your neck of the woods actually uh, in one of the half distance races in Australia, and yeah. the way the point system worked, that for him to get the hundred to get a hundred points, which is you know, I guess the equivalent of a par in golf or whatever, he would have had to have got the seventy point three world record. Um, mm. Doesn't make is, sense. Doesn't make any sense, you know. And uh, I mean, the, even the race what we did in South Africa, the, it was on the same course as the seventy point three Worlds course, and I biked the same time as Braden Curry and a load of the guys that were in the top ten in the world seventy point three. But I did it two times over in them mm. conditions, you know. And I might not have done a good run, but still, some of the guys were in the group with us, and they ran two forty one. So it was a pretty, sol- it was a solid performance. But the points yeah. were terrible, you know. Like they were some what I got in Ironman UK. And I can tell you that my performance in Man UK on the bike was horrific. So how that adds up to like me getting them points is just—it seems a bit of a lottery. And uh, Europe is such a strong um, continent, you know, with athletes that you know you could be fifth, you could be ranked fifth European, you could be ranked potentially seventh or eighth, you know, in the world rankings, and you don't qualify for the Collins Cup. So I'd love to go to that. That would be awesome, but it's uh, very hard. And there's no clear way of what the points are in certain races. So. You go there and obviously give it your best shot, but hopefully it would be enough. But I really have no, no idea. It just seems a bit of a lottery, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I love the PTO, what they're doing. I think, you know, they've got a, a, an end game in mind. They're playing the long game. Um, I think it's great for the athletes to have a voice in the sport, um, to be stakeholders in the sport. There's no question. I think there's some fine tuning that needs to get done to a, to a lot of these things. and. I mean in the end I would just say the most thing for each athlete is just to focus on performance not points I mean
1: yeah that's just what I do I just go there and yeah. just try and smash it and like yeah whatever the points are they are I mean it would be fantastic to qualify for the cons cup but who knows it's like it's a lottery I mean if I was like mm. uh going for a, if I was American or if I was in the rest of the world it would be a lot easier because it goes down to like you know 20 top 20 in the world can pretty much get it but you know Europe's such a strong nation it'd be great if like what people say and like England separates away because then it would make it a lot easier to go you know well, mate have you got
0: a have you got any distant Aussie convict relatives mate because I'm the uh <laughs> I'm the international team captain if you get yourself an Aussie passport we can get you on the team oh yeah you are aren't you
1: yeah yeah my <laughs> sister's actually living in Sydney she's probably yeah. not too far away from you Bondi she's been she's been granted uh I think citizenship now, or whatever, or she's she was sponsored because she stayed there for the whole of COVID. I think there was only <laughs> under four hundred people in Australia that stayed that stayed in uh, Australia throughout it.
0: Yeah, right. Didn't leave the country. It's a lot of uh, a lot of UK residents in Bondi. It's Is great there? I- it's a great part of the world, mate. But yeah, I would I'd love to live it's there. Really about that nice
1: pool, you know the one what you see that you see the pictures, don't you? The outdoor fifty meter pool where the, the waves Bondi come in. the
0: Bondi icebergs. Yeah, it's a great. Apparently, great... she
1: was in there the other day when Tim Reed went there, and she was showing him a fresh, clean, a fresh pair of heels. You know, he couldn't keep yeah. on her feet. Reid, he needs he to work.
0: Know. He needs to work on his swimming. <laughs> Actually, I was just on a call before with um, one of the Bondi. Do you guys get the show Bondi Rescue in the UK? No. Uh, right, it's a it's, it's kind not of paywork, is it? it's made it's real life Baywatch it's about the Bondi lifeguards and a lot of them are triathletes actually they're very fit they're very fit oh really the, they often go and do um do swim sessions in that pool at the Bondi icebergs yeah really and I watch the show a lot it's my uh it's my daughter's favorite show so we're always watching anyway I digress
1: Australia does some funny things to people because I remember my sister when she was younger and she was living here she wouldn't be out of bed until half nine Ten o'clock. Like, I'm not an early riser. She was a lot worse. I see on bloody Strava now. She's at the pool at like before six in the morning. I'm like, You've changed. What what are you doing, Rose? Like, you were never- you're an Early bird, never- early bird
0: gets the worm, mate. We're very pumped up and motivated down here. We rub yeah. off on people yeah. in a good way.
1: <laughs> she said there's an opening for the Columns Cup if you get a few results. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> get a nice passport, mate.
0: Well, I've taken up enough of your time, mate. Thank you. It's always entertaining to chat. I love uh I love what you do. Keep doing you, mate. It's been it's been entertaining. I know you ruffle a few feathers and, and whatnot, but, but we just love a you. Few, just a few
1: recently. Just a
0: few. <laughs> yeah, that's okay, mate. You just uh, have good intentions and respect and if people take you yeah. the wrong way, they, that's how they take you. So Yeah. Thanks for joining us. I, um, mate, I'll be in Utah, so I, I'll catch up and I'll give you a cheer from the side of the road.
1: Cheers, um, mate. Yeah, I'll see you out there.
0: Yeah. To everyone listening, I hope you've enjoyed our little chat today. If so, you should give Argon18 a follow on their socials because they do quite a few of these episodes. And um, I want to thank Argon18 for organising my little chat with Joe today. It's been fun. Thanks for for tuning in and listening to our This Is My Ride podcast series presented by Argon18. Take care, everyone.
1: dad yeah. my, li- my dad's literally just yeah. coming the door because seriously there you hear the dogs <laughs>
0: that's all good Right, dad i'm just on the podcast i'll come and say hi afterwards